Good morning. Have a seat. Unless you want to stand, it's up to you. Your call. The other day, we, last week we were at the zoo. I think some of us were there. Uh, it was fun. There was a lot of people there. My favorite uh, memory was I was getting ready to go on at the end, and I looked in the way back, and there was someone in a tree. Like they had climbed the tree illegally, and they were just sitting there. And I was like, Zacchaeus, you come down. And it was, I looked back and I was like, well, there's nothing we can do about that. If they fall, it's, they signed a waiver. We're good. It's the Zeus thing now. But it was just one of those, I'll remember that. Plus, everyone being there was a lot of fun being there. I'm glad if you were there, thanks for coming. I hope you had a good time. I hope you saw all the animals you wanted to see. Uh, if you weren't there, you kind of missed it. I don't know what else to say. So uh, don't miss it again. But it, it was a great time. Hey, we are, uh, when we were at the zoo... Uh, one of the things that we were walking around afterwards, and it was lunchtime, and I had gone and collected pizzas for the boys, and, and I was trying to find Carrie, and I found them. They were at the Lions, and I, was, I came with everything, and I tried to find Judah and say, here's your pizza, because he was complaining how hungry he was. He had been there since 8 o'clock. It's 1 o'clock now. I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And we sat down, and I said, Judah, here's your pizza. I have, is that downstairs or is that here? Okay, I hear music. Maybe it's just my brain. Uh, but I said, Judah, here's your pizza. And he was holding on to literally two things, uh, a micro machine or like a Hot Wheel type thing, and then his mask. And he goes, Daddy, I can't take it. My hands are too full. <laughs> I'm like, you seriously, kid? You can hold those with here. And then you could, no, Daddy, I can't take it. My hands are full. You're going to have to hold it. And it's like, wow, you're literally complaining about how hungry you are. And here I am to solve all of your problems of hunger with this really bad pepperoni pizza. And I'm going to give it to you and then pray that somehow it blesses your body. And it's like, this is, this is it. No, Daddy, I can't take it. You're going to have to hold it for me. I, I'm, I can't eat it. I've got to hold on to these things. And it made me think, wow, you and I do the same thing. We have so much that we're wanting God to do for us. And then when we ask him for it, he goes, here you go. We're so busy holding on to a whole bunch of other stuff that we, can't, we don't want to let go of in order to grab on to what can bring us life and sustenance. Today, we wrap up our series of the, of the invitation to wholeness. And a few weeks ago, we began this with this invitation to this life that God has for you. And he invites you to walk along with Jesus. He invites you to this thing. Wholeness is another name for discipleship. And discipleship means you're becoming more and more like Jesus with every single step you take. And so we're, the invitation to wholeness is there for you. And if you were here that first week, we wrote down, I'm letting go of this in order to grab on to this. I'm letting go of this habit to grab on to what Jesus has for me. I'm willing to sacrifice this. And so we talked about, we talked about, identity. We talked about how we serve. We talked about how, who's forming us. A whole bunch of things on what we can let go of in order to be formed, shaped, and, and turn into little versions of Jesus wherever we go. Today's a hard one. Today's this invitation to, uh, we call it generosity, but I think generosity is a little bit of a soft word for it. When we think of generosity, we usually think of money. But in the scriptures, generosity's not really there the word for generosity is more like this, sacrifice. It doesn't say be generous with your sacrifice. It says, no, sacrifice. And, and, and sacrifice means that it means something to us. 
in order to let go, in order to grab onto the life that Christ has for us, you and I need to sacrifice. And we see this throughout the breadth of Scripture. Abraham was called to be a great nation. What's the first thing God asked him to do? Are you willing to part with your son? Moses called, called to lead. And the first thing they asked him, he has to go to this far end of the desert. You have to give something up in order to follow Jesus. Like my son holding the, the whatever this was, car and the mask. I have to be able to put one down in order to grab on to what's coming. And there are two stories that in Jesus's ministry, and there's an example from Paul, we'll get there. But the two stories in Jesus's ministry are the rich young ruler and then the rich fool. And uh, both of them show us the same picture of someone who's grabbing on to so many things and that Jesus offers them this new life and they go, nah, my hands are full, I can't really take it. And then one of them, Jesus was sad for the rich young ruler and the other one he says, you fool, which translated, you're an idiot. And so well, we're going to look at those today, but I want to give a little bit of a, a rant before we get there. It's clear some things up. These two passages are used as clobber passages to prove some sort of socioeconomic policy. That's not what these passages are for. Well, people can read these and, and think that, well, Jesus must have been a socialist. No. Sorry, try again. Because if he was a socialist here, there's other parables that say that he was a capitalist. So cool your jets on socialism. Also cool your jets on capitalism because there's other passages that say Jesus wasn't a capitalist. The problem is we come into these passages and we read into them our policies. And Jesus goes, I'm not about those policies. I'm not about socialism, not about capitalism, not about the next ism. I'm about the kingdom. And so when he talks about things like this, about giving everything up, following Jesus, or, or sacrificing your wealth, he's not doing so to espouse some political viewpoint. He's saying, this stuff doesn't match with the kingdom of God, which I'm inaugurating here. The kingdom of God is about something we have never seen before. And both of these arguments act as distractions to the text. They said, we, we can get going on these, and we think, well, I'm right. I have to vote this way now, and everybody else is wrong. That's, that's not the point of these. They're, they're trying to bring us to a bigger picture of what God is doing. And maybe when you read these, one of the things that you need to do, we all need to do, the church needs to do this, is let go of some of your political ideologies to actually see what the text is saying. The church will be wise to do that, to get back to allowing the scripture to dictate what we believe rather than our culture to dictate what the scripture says, okay? Rant over. Let's look at the rich young ruler. Luke 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, which says that, anyway, good teacher, what must I do to inherit inter eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, that's awkward. No one is good except God alone. You know the commands, you should not commit adultery, uh, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. And the man interrupts him. All of these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Now let's stop and look at a couple things. Luke calls this person a, a, a rich ruler or a, a certain ruler. Matthew calls him young. Mark kind of calls him both. So we don't know how old this man is. We do know that he had some clout. Luke doesn't go into a detail, but he's likely some sort of politician by the way he talks, 
there's some, he's a wealthy landowner. He's a type of influencer. If you were walking around in Jerusalem that day or wherever Jesus was in this section and you would see him, you'd go, oh, that's so-and-so. So he's someone you would know of. And then he comes to Jesus and he tries to flatter Jesus. Good teacher. This is probably some sort of political doublespeak. We see politicians do this. They'll, they'll respect this person across the aisle, which they loathe, right? They'll say, well, the fine congressman from blah, and then they go on to tell him how bad this congressman is. He's saying, good teacher. It's a strategy. He's trying to get Jesus to come to his side of the argument. It's a little bit of the motive here. He says, I, I want Jesus to tell me that I'm right, that I don't have to change here. He wants Jesus to give him the answer he's looking for. Uh, and, and this is another thing. He wants to know about his life. The man's likely got everything he could imagine. He's got land, which makes you wealthy. He's got status, which comes from the land. He's got wealth. He's got clout. He's got power. But the list of things that he can obtain in this world, one of the things that you can't buy, the Beatles were kind of right, you can't buy love, but you can't buy eternal life. And he comes to Jesus and says, I can make all this money. I have all of this, but what I don't have He's eternal life. So I'm going to go ask the teacher, and I'm going to butter him up a little bit. Good teacher, tell me how I can get eternal life. How can I obtain this one more thing? And he tries to Jesus, goes to Jesus for this, but Jesus doesn't fall for this. The issue of goodness has to do, according to Jesus' answer, with honoring God, not how much stuff you can obtain, not how much clout you can have which is why Jesus answers this question in the way he does. Specifically, he references the Ten Commandments. And there are three places where the Ten Commandments are listed. They're listed in Exodus, and they're listed twice in Deuteronomy. The one he talks about, the one he references, is one of the last things that Moses talks about before Moses dies. It's in Deuteronomy 30, specifically verses 15 through 20. He says this, Moses says, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I commanded you today to love the Lord your God, walk in obedience to him, and keep his commands, decrees, and laws, and you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. And then it goes on, and Moses then, in the last part of it says, Choose life. Choose to honor God. Don't choose to follow the ways of idolatry. And so when Jesus comes to him and says this, he says, look, I want you to, yes, you're honoring God, but you're kind of falling off the wayside towards idolatry as well. Your stuff is getting in the way. The ruler says, well, I've kept those commands. Have you? I mean, it's probably since he was age 13, he's kept the commands because at age 13 in, in that society, you were considered a man. He goes, from 13 on, I've kept all of them to the T. In other words, he's saying to Jesus, look, I have a list of things and I've checked all the boxes I've had. There's nothing more for me to obtain. This is the only thing. And he comes to Jesus and says, please check off the last thing on the list so I can have peace. And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, this isn't how it works. Your goodness is not your identity. In fact, your goodness of accumulating all the wealth and everything for you has actually taken you far, far away from what God is wanting you to do. You've placed everything of value in what you own. 
and you haven't looked at the person who owns you, which is God. But he, he calls Jesus good. And Jesus then says, well, if you've called me good and you've done all of these things, I'm going to give you one more challenge. And he's in Luke 18, 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. So everything you have, give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Here's essentially the challenge that Jesus offers him, and it's crucial we understand this. Will this man prefer what earth can give him, or will he prefer what Jesus offers him? He has his hands full, and Jesus is saying, you've got to put something down. Now, we can look at this passage, and instantly we say, well, obviously the, the possessions were evil. It's, hard, it's evil to be rich. It's not what Jesus was saying. Back up a little bit. If the possessions were evil, then why did Jesus say, give evil to other people? doesn't make any sense. If having stuff is wrong, then he would have said, burn that stuff. Don't give your evil things to the poor, because we have to care for the poor. Remember, justice. Burn that stuff. Get rid of it. That's what he would have said if the things were bad. They're not bad. His possessions were fine, except his possessions began to possess him. They were beginning to destroy him. It's okay to have stuff, and we can all relax. It's okay to have a bank account. It's okay to have savings. It's okay to have a cool car. That's not what Jesus, Jesus isn't saying, that you have to go take on this vow of poverty. Now, some might have that call, and that's great. But what Jesus is warning this young ruler is, you have money, you have possessions, but you're allowing them to possess you, and they've become an idol to you. And what do we do with idols? You destroy them. And the prophets, whenever they cleaned out the temple, the first thing they did was they took the idols and they burned them. That's what Jesus is saying. You have an idol here in your life. Give it away. And then you'll see what life is truly about. You can't buy eternal life. You can't just come to Jesus with, I have all of this stuff with me and for me and in my bank account. I just need this one more thing. He's using Jesus as a commodity. And Jesus says, I don't play like that. I'm not the one more thing. I'm the thing. And then everything else comes from it. He stood face to face, this man, with the life that Jesus had for him. He stood face to face with the life that he was requesting. Yet his hands were too full and he was too possessed by his uh, possessions in order to follow Jesus. The tragedy of the story isn't that this man had money. The tragedy is that he wouldn't let go of it. He might have had possessions, but the possessions took his life as a result. The second story is the same. And if you flip back in your Bibles to Luke 12, verse 13, it's another parable. Another time a man comes to ask Jesus something. Someone in the crowd came to him in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I had this conversation with Judah yesterday. Caleb had all the baseballs. We got a t-ball set. And he said, Daddy, tell Caleb to do this. Give me all the baseballs. And I replied, no, figure it out, and walked away and watched golf. But Jesus replied to the man, man, who appointed me to be a judge 
or an arbitrator between you. Now, we can look at these first two verses and we can say, this family's got some issues, right? There's a little bit of a dispute. Who gets what and how much? And this argument that this man brings is he feels like he should have more of the inheritance. The way the inheritance has worked back then is usually it fell to the majority of the inheritance fell to the oldest son. And then it would trickle down after that. But the big chunk of it went to the oldest. This guy didn't think it was right. And so he comes to Jesus, yet Jesus wants no part of this. Jesus knows that there's an an underlying issue happening here. These matters also weren't for Jesus to decide. These matters had laws, civic laws and traditional laws that were beyond Jesus' scope of, I guess you would say, influence. And that's weird to say about Jesus, but Jesus is like, hey, these have already been decided. Why are you coming to me on this topic? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not someone who's going to settle these kind of disputes. They're already made. And from the sound of it, Jesus is perfectly fine with the way that these decisions go. So right away, there's a deeper question at hand. There's a fractured relationship. There's a fractured relationship not only between the brother and his family, but there's a fractured relationship between this man and God. And what stands in front of that relationship is this greed. He had no desire to be on good terms with either people, God or his brother, and he couldn't care less about fixing this sort of relationship. He just wants his piece of the pie, and he wants to get, get it on his terms in his way in his time. He wants what he thinks is his. And so instead of Jesus saying, be a good brother and share, which is what parents today say, that's what I ended up saying, he gives a warning, and he gives this parable that has perplexed a lot of people and honestly scares the crud out of all of us, or it should. He says this, watch out. And he said to the man, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of abundance of possessions. And then that's the launching point to this parable that we'll get to. That line right there shows up in a lot of other texts throughout the scriptures. Romans, Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians, 2 Peter, and then Ephesians again. So this is the intro to the parable. This is going to be about how your greed and how your thinking about your possessions can ruin your walk with Jesus. He's warning his listeners, this is about greed, and greed is sneaky. Watch out for it. And he told this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, There's a few observations that we make in those first two verses. This man is alone. In those times, you wouldn't go to yourself to make a decision. There were the city gates, and you would go to your community and go, hey, my investments accidentally made an extra $3 million. I don't know what to do with it. You and I can think of what we can do with $3 million, right? You ever play that game? If I won the lottery, this is what I would do. I wouldn't tell you all. That's, what, that's the first thing. But the, this man is alone. He has this windfall of crops. He doesn't know what to do with it. And so he thought to himself, instead of trying to figure out with his community, with his family, with his spouse, with his kids, he thought to himself because he has nobody else to speak to. He's speaking to himself because he has no one. It was always assumed that there was a group of people that you would journey life with, but this man had so much greed that no one wanted to be around him is an observation we can make. He was probably a jerk of a dude. 
selfish. And it shows he has this crop and he doesn't know what to do with it. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. All in all, what we see with this is this man had a big harvest, and so he needs new barns. Now, here's the other thing we could take from this. Farmers genuinely know, generally, how much they're going to get, right? You, you plant, I have this many fields, this fall goes together, I'll have this much grain, therefore I need to plant ahead and have this much storage space. There's whole careers designed for this, right? And so this is, this is what a good farmer does. Now, this man's surprised. He planted, and now he has more. So one, he's not a good farmer. His planning was terrible, yet he has a lot of stuff. So anyone listening to this story would know that this man is not responsible for the grain that just came from his planting. Something else was responsible for this. And the answer to this is God's responsible for what happened to you this windfall of riches that this man had, those came from God. It was nothing that this farmer did because he's not a good farmer. Yet this man stumbled onto wealth, and what's the first thing he says? I have done this. And you see them going, look how cool I am. Look what I've done. I have a great harvest, and it's awesome. Look how good I am. And everyone around him is going, yeah, we don't want to be around you anymore. So I'll say to myself, in fact, five times, in four verses, it says, what will I do? My fruit, my barns, my gold. It was all about him. His greed isolated him from his community. But it also forced him away from the life that God wanted to give him. And so it says in verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. Translate down, you're an idiot. The, when you look at the word idiot, it means this person who has separated himself or herself, away from community, isolated. They say they have the village idiot, but the idea of an idiot is that you don't have a village around you. You're living life on your own. Jesus, or God says to him, you're a fool. This is also one of, the first, or one of the only parables where God actually interjects himself and begins talking. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it'll be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich for God. Now, there's some words that we need to look at here. It's always fun we can get into the words, right? The first word for fool is the word affron. You want to say affron? Affron, yes. The root word for this is the word friend, P-H-R-E-N, which, which kind of points to your diaphragm, your very breath, the center of who you are. It's the center of your passions. It's the center of your understandings. It's the center of your life source. So when God comes to the scene and says, ah, friend, it's meaning this person doesn't have that life source in them. It's the image of being without life. It's the image of being without passion or awareness. God says this man's a fool. He's living life truly without life. In other words, you have all of this stuff but you're actually dead. You might think you have life based on your grain, but you're dead, man. You fool. The other word God uses is the word demand. It's the legal term. It's a pateo. You want to say that? 
Apatheo. Yeah, kind of like appetite, but not. It's the legal term that means to demand something back. So if, uh, if say, you come to my place and, and you need to borrow a lawnmower, and I say, sure, good luck, it needs gas, and I hand it to you, I loan it to you. And when I come and get it back, say, my lawn's getting a little bit out of hand, I need my mower back, that's apateo. I'm demanding my mower back, into which you go, yeah, cool, thanks for the loan. Here you go. And hopefully you put gas in it, and it, it, we're all good. And so it's, it's this idea of someone lent something to you, and legally, you can go back and say, can I have this back? This brings an entire meaning to this parable, because God is demanding something back from this man that God lent him in the first place. He didn't grow the crops. God did. And God said, I want it back. Those aren't yours. None of the things this man owns are his. They all came from someplace else. None of the things we own are necessarily ours. It all comes from God. God gives this stuff to us. Your money, your job, your cars, your identity. It all comes from God. Now, we talk about this. Instantly, we go to our finances. But it's much more than finances. It's everything about you is from the Lord. The psalmist says, every good and perfect gift comes from yourself? No. From me? No. Everything good and perfect that we own comes from the Lord. Our stuff isn't ours. It's a gift. Our very lives aren't ours. They're a gift. Sure, they should be, they should be cherished. Absolutely. They should be shared. Absolutely. They should be given away. Totally. Because we don't belong to ourselves. Paul says that, hey, You follow Jesus, you're dead. The life you had before Jesus is gone. You don't even have that life anymore. You have been raised, and now you're in Christ. Everything you own is in Christ. Our stuff isn't ours, yet we hold on to it like it is. Our stuff begins to define ourselves, and what ends up happening is that when we have so much stuff, and the warning here is when you have a lot, you tend to tighten your grip. And then you lose track of where it came from. And then it begins to define you and who you think you are. And then you begin to distance yourself from others. And most importantly, your hands are so full with what you think gives you life, you're actually dead because you miss the life that God's offering to you. Now hear me say again, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. But when your stuff has you, you've got issues. This is why this, I have this, I, this problem with this idea of an invitation to generosity. Because the invitation to wholeness, which I totally agree with, isn't just to be generous. Because who defines generous? Us. But what is God after? Everything. The idea of a tithe, a 10%, comes from the Old Testament. Great. It's a wonderful concept. 10% is great. The New Testament tells us something different. New Testament says, I don't care about your tithes. I want your heart. I want you. I want all of you. I just don't want some of you. When you're invited to a party, does just part of you show up? If you're at a party and you're over there on your phone like this the whole time, are you a good party? Are you a good party person? No, unless you're group texting with someone across the room about something funny that happened, maybe. But it's, it's when, you're, when you're invited someplace, it's best that you show up 100% of you. 
this is the call that God asks for us. It's not just to be generous and give a little bit off the top. No, you, all of you. And so this idea of generosity is, is almost a little weak because the invitation that Jesus puts out for us in these two parables and other parables is to give your entire self away. It's to hold yourself with open hands and say, God, I'm at your service. Every single part of me, my money, my time, my talents, my stuff, my dinner table, who am I inviting over, all of this is yours. It's a sacrifice, not just generosity. Now, there's generous sacrifices, sure, but the key word there is sacrifice. Sacrifice is a more accurate description of what the Bible is calling us to. Sacrifice is uncomfortable. Uh, in, in the days of sacrifices, they'd, they'd be something that would be totally used to seeing. They would walk down the street and they would see a sacrifice almost every single day. They were bloody. They were messy. But the idea of a sacrifice was it was in totality, meaning everything that the sacrifice is is on the altar and it can't crawl off. It's there. Sacrifice takes work and sacrifice will cost you something. When we sacrifice ourselves, we give all of it. And so this idea of, from Jesus is to be sacrificial with yourself. The invitation is for all of you, not just some of you. Now, Paul talks about this in Romans 12. Yeah, Paul built a case, Romans 1 through 11. I know I've said this before, but if you haven't heard it, this is great. If you have, this is review. Romans is one of the centerpieces of Scripture, theological work. It's a wonderful book totally debated, and you can get into a whole bunch of fun stuff with it. But in the first 11 chapters of Romans is all this stuff about how good God is. It's kind of hard to get to it, but if you read it carefully, you could see what Paul is showing you is all of these mercies that God has given you. He's ended the law. He has given you grace. He's saved you uh, when we were totally gone and under the weight of sin. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul gets to Romans chapter 12, and he begins with the word therefore, which you have to figure out why therefore is there. It's there because Paul has ascended to this top of the mountain, and he's looking back down and goes, look at everything God has done for you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, everything that God has done for you, offer your bodies as a living no, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Another way you could say that is this is the only rightful way that you could respond. A sacrifice is the response when he looks back and sees how good this God is, how merciful this God is, why would you hold on to anything else in your life when he's offering you these mercies and you're sitting here holding on to your stuff? Your only response is to say, I'm going to drop it and I'm going to put myself on the altar because that's what he's after. Now, the problem with living sacrifices is that it's, you're still alive. And you could crawl off the altar is what one theologian says. This is the problem with that because if I don't feel like it, I can kind of wiggle myself off of this and, and, and go on with life. No, no, Paul says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. The discipline that we have to, to develop in our life is not crawl off the altar. 
So Paul says, look at all these mercies. Look at everything that you have. Everything in your life is because of the grace of God. And what's our response? Give it back. Open your hands to it. We do this by literally offering our lives. It's not just about our money. He's after every single aspect of who you are. Money is just one of the many aspects. He wants our hands. He wants your feet. He wants your minds. He wants your actions. He wants your finances. He wants your work. He wants your play. He wants your conversations. Everything you have is a response to God's mercy. You see why being generous is kind of a weak way out? Yeah, tithing, great. What about the other part of your life? Instead of a cow or a bird in Paul's uh, uh, theory now, it's now us. We're the sacrifice. And the problem we have is we're being confronted like the two men in the parables. We're being confronted with this idea. Jesus is holding out this life for us. Yet our hands are so full at times where we can't grab onto it. So you can have my work and play, we say. You can have this, God, but don't you dare touch my finances. I'm going to pull that off the altar. I'm going to leave that one over here. I'm going to, I'm going to hide it so God can't see it, which is a funny concept anyways, right? If it came from God, why are you going to hide it from him in the first place? Or you can have my work, you can have my play, you can have my finances. Don't you dare touch my sexuality. That's me. When I close the bedroom door, you can't see what's going on in there. It's kind of funny too, right? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Or you can have my sexuality, my time, my finances, even my relationship. But don't you dare touch my calendar. My time is my time. And Paul is urging that if the life we want in view of God's mercies and the life that we're supposed to live, the life that Jesus is offering to us, has, we have to let go of some of those things that we think bring us life in order to grab on to the life that Jesus has for us. We bring what we have back to God and, says, and say, this is me, all of me. You can have it. Because that's the only reasonable response, according to Paul, that we can have when we're confronted with how much mercy and grace that God has given us. And it's the only reasonable response that Jesus was looking for, for the, from these two men. But what holds us back? I think what holds us back is we have a false view of God, that God is somehow out there to ruin our lives. Like, he wants, us, uh, he, he wants to make us go somewhere we don't want to go. He wants us to move to Tacoma or something like that, or, or pick the place, North Dakota. I'm sorry if you're from North Dakota. I'm glad you moved. Or, heaven forbid, God doesn't want you to get married. Or, in the other side, heaven forbid, God wants you to get married. Uh, it can go both ways. Or, you know, if I give my life to God, he's going to make me drive an ugly car. Or make me live in this weird house. Or he's going to make me do something terrible. And honestly, it's true that we think that thing. We're scared to give something up because if we sacrifice this, we're afraid we're going to miss out. And so we have this kind of divine FOMO that God's going to make us miss out on some of the great things. What kind of God is that? And honestly, if that's your view of God, you, you need a new God. Do you really think that God is sitting up there on the edge of his throne, and, and, and let's anthropomorphize God a little bit, and he's looking down and says, how can I screw with them today? 
Is that your view of God? How can I make their lives miserable? I tell you, I'll make them give me these things and then I'll make them live in a one-bedroom shack at the end of No, that's not what God says. In fact, the picture we get from God throughout Scripture is the God who is on the edge of his seat, yes, looking down from heaven and he's a good father and he says, how can I bless them today? And, and, and Jesus tells the parable about prayer and he says, you know, when you ask your, if you guys are good parents, if your kid comes to you and asks you for a, a uh, some food? Are you going to give them rocks? No. Are you going to give them a snake? No. The image we get from God is that he's good, and he's up there looking down at us saying, they're my kids. How am I going to love them today? Jesus embodies this picture of God as a God who wants to bless us, a God who wants to use us, a God who wants to give us all that we ask, a God who is trying to break into our world not to make your life comfortable, there's no sense of comfort in the call to Jesus, but to make your life worth living, to give you meaning for your life that goes beyond what's in your bank accounts, that goes beyond what kind of house you live or whether or not you live in North Dakota or Tacoma. But a God who says, I want to give wherever you are meaning. And the problem is still, we're so wrapped up in our stuff that we don't have the capacity to reach out and take the very thing that we're needing. How many of you remember monkey bars? I think they're still on the playground, right? You grab onto them and then you try and swing across. Remember those? I remember in elementary school we had monkey bars. I fell down them a lot or off of them, and I still do. But the thing was, you, you get yourself going, and if you want to impress your crush at the other end of the playground, you do this. You skip a bar right? And then you swing and then you skip another bar. And the really cool guy named Josh Evans skipped two bars. Everybody liked Josh, and I'm like, that jerk, but I could beat him in, I beat him in tetherball. That's all that counts. I was the tetherball champion in elementary school, just so you all know. If you have a tetherball, I will play. Uh, but the idea of the monkey bars is this. If you're holding on to this one and holding on to this one and you stop your momentum, what happens? You get tired, your arms start to give out, your muscles can only hold yourself for so long. You have to let go of this one in order to swing and grab the other one. And then you have to let go in order to grab on to the other one. You let go, swing, grab, let go, swing, grab. I'm trying to teach my son this right now so he can impress all of his crushes on the, on the, on the monkey bars. The problem is with me, I had a hard time letting go of this last one because I wasn't really sure that I had had the strength to grab on to the next one. And then I'm not making any progress. And then I'm stuck. And then I'm just hanging there wondering why God hates me. Right? This is the concept that, that is, is kind of rolling with all of our stuff. In order for us to make the momentum, we have to let go of some things. Just because you let go of it doesn't mean that God's going to snatch it out of your hands and say, ha ha, I got it now. No, he wants your heart. He wants your willingness to say, Lord, I have all this stuff. Here you go. What do you want to do with it? Not what I want to do with it. Not what you want to do with it. What do you, Jesus, what do you want to do with my finances? 
Some of y'all have the gift to take $1 and make it $1,000 by the end of tomorrow, and this is great, especially in this economy. That's a wonderful gift. Use it. God's given you that gift. Now, how's God going to use that gift? Do you see the difference? There's nothing wrong with having that, that ability. I'm jealous of you. But how's that ability going to come back and serve the kingdom? Some of you have relationships. How are those relationships honoring to God? We've been given this beautiful gift of sexuality. How is that honoring God? There are certain parameters within scriptures that we see sexuality is for. Are you honoring God with that part of you? Is it the tightly held opinions that you have? You're bright. You have a great brain. Most of you do. Uh, All of you do. But are those opinions you have, the tightly held opinions... Are they thinking everybody else is wrong and elevating your own self, saying, I'm the only right one here. All of you are incorrect until you think like me. Well, can you see how that can isolate you? Yeah, you have great opinions. But have you sacrificed your opinions to the Lord and your brain and the way you think? Maybe it's a false sense of yourself that you have to be a certain way all the time, even though you know that's not your authentic self but you think that you have to portray your own body and your own way you look and think a certain way in order to have people like you, and God's like, that's not how I made you. Maybe you have to sacrifice the perception of yourself. Is it your addiction, the thing you have to have in order to to survive throughout the day? Maybe you sacrifice that. The life you want can only be found when we let go of the things that we have in order to grab on to Jesus. And the call of living sacrifice means that we have to do that every single day of our lives. Every morning. Every hour. We have to place ourselves on the altar. Light the torch, so to speak. And say, this is me. And I'm giving it back to you, Lord. What do you have to offer today? What's your sacrifice? What do you keep pulling back on the altar thinking, "Ah, I don't really want to give this up. But God's saying, I have so much more for you if you would just sacrifice it to me. Imagine what we can get if we put down our mask and we get that piece of pizza that Judah was hungered for and said, this stuff doesn't matter as much as this does. This is what I need. This is just what I have. And I have to let go of what I have in order to get what I need. All of us are on these monkey bars called life. And in our society, it's very easy to get wrapped up in what we have and what we don't have. Jesus says, when you have me, you got everything you need. Everything else is just pocket change. What do you have to sacrifice today? Pray with me. Father, everything that's good comes from you. And we thank you for the gifts that you've given us. Roofs over our head, means to to live. The fact that we're here today, the fact that we can all breathe deep, that breath comes from you. You gave it to us at the beginning of life. And that life that you give us, every single aspect of that life, every single thing that goes into making this life comes from you. And so today, Lord, we give 
and give it back. In an act of trust, in an act of saying, you're good. You're a good God. And I trust you with this. And so we give you our lives. We give you our very heart, the source of life. And we say it's yours. And how that trickles down into the rest of our lives, so be it. But Lord, we bring to you on the altar today our very lives because that's the only place where we can find wholeness. It's the only place where we can find ourselves complete. Because you gave your all for us, we can give our all for you. And so in these next few minutes, would you ask the Spirit to look in your life? What are the things you're holding back? And perhaps today God is asking you to at least offer that to him for him to use. Not just you, but for him to use. And then if you're comfortable enough, there's communion over to uh, your left, my right. Where we can say, you gave it all for me, I'm giving it back to you. The rich man and the rich fool both walked away from Jesus that day. They didn't get what they were looking for. Don't let Jesus see you walk away and miss out on the life that he's looking and offering.